I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to Remembering Zion, Setting Minds on Things Above. In this segment of the podcast, I have been reading through excerpts from my book, Sound Worship, A Guide to Making Musical Choices in a Noisy World. Today, we are going to begin chapter six, entitled, How Should We Think About Sunday Morning? And I will focus on the first section of the chapter, The Purpose of Corporate Worship. You can purchase this book, Sound Worship, on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. And I've also produced a teacher's edition that you can use in small group or other teaching settings as well. I trust this will be a help to you. Chapter 6 How Should We Think About Sunday Morning? The scene is all too familiar. The alarm goes off on Sunday morning. After hitting the snooze button one or two times, you finally crawl out of bed and begin a hectic morning of getting yourself and the rest of your family ready for the morning service with your church. You scramble around to get clean, decide what you're going to wear, scarf down a piece of toast, and find that missing shoe. After a hurried trip down the road, you race into the church building and plop down in your seat just in time for the meeting to begin. It's not until about 15 minutes into the service that you finally catch your breath and start noticing what's going on. Even then, your mind wanders. You wonder why Mrs. Smith and the choir chose to wear that dress today, and you struggle to stay awake during the sermon. A profitable time of worship? Hardly. Glorifying the one you are worshiping? Probably not. It is unfortunate that many Christians really put very little thought into why they are gathering corporately, what they can do to prepare for corporate worship, and what they should be focusing on during the service. In this chapter, we're going to consider some biblical answers to these important questions. The Purpose of Corporate Worship Put very simply, corporate worship is Christians worshiping together with other Christians. If worship is essentially spiritual response to truth, then corporate worship is corporate spiritual response to truth. Sunday morning should be time set apart by the local church for corporate worship. Yet not all Christians agree with that assertion. Some Christians question one or both of the claims of the statement, first, that Christians must assemble on Sunday, and second, that they must assemble to worship. The Day Belonging to the Lord Christians should set apart every day unto the Lord as a sacrifice of worship, Romans 12.1. But the first day of the week has been specifically distinguished from the other six days by God. This special day was prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 118.21-24 says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Christians often use this passage to teach that we should rejoice in every day that God has made. But more correctly, this passage speaks of a specific day in which we should specifically rejoice. This special day that the Lord has made is the one on which the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Peter explains what this special day is in Acts 4, 10-11. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter indicates that this special day prophesied in Psalm 118 is the day on which Jesus the Messiah raised from the dead, which all four Gospels tell us was the first day of the week. This day of Christ's victory over sin and death is one in which Christians should rejoice in a special way, different from the other six days of the week. This special, set-apart day is specifically designated as the Lord's Day. Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. This expression, Lord's Day, is not the same as other expressions in Revelation rendered Day of the Lord. The term translated Lord's in Revelation 1 is not the same term used in the other references. This is a unique term of possession, indicating that because of Christ's resurrection, the first day of the week is a special day belonging to the Lord. While it is true that the expression Lord's Day is used only once in the New Testament, and it is not explicitly connected to the first day of the week, testimony of early church leaders, including some friends of the Apostle John, confirm that the first day was called the Lord's Day. For example, Ignatius, a companion of John, said, Let us no more sabotage, but let us keep the Lord's Day on which our life arose. Likewise, Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a friend of John, said, On the Lord's day, every one of us Christians keep the Sabbath, meditating on the law and rejoicing in the works of God. Since John's friends referred to the first day of the week as the Lord's day, there is no doubt to what John was referring in Revelation 1.10. The same possessive term, Lord's, is used in 1 Corinthians 11.20 with reference to the Lord's Supper. This biblical ordinance is a supper belonging to the Lord in a special way. It is a supper set apart from other common suppers because it symbolizes the death of Christ. Similarly, the first day of the week is set apart from other common days because it is the day on which Christ arose. We find clear examples in the New Testament of churches gathering together on the first day of the week. Acts 27. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So well was the Christian observance of the Lord's Day known in the first centuries that pagan officials would ask, Do you keep the Lord's Day? as equivalent to the question, Are you a Christian? So it is clear that for a Christian, the first day of the week should be a special day set apart for God, 
because it is a day especially belonging to him. The command to worship corporately. There are some who argue today, however, that when churches gather, their purpose is not for worship. Their purpose might be edification, evangelism, discipleship, and fellowship, but not worship. Essentially, people like this argue that worship should encompass all of life, not just Sunday morning. We worship every day of the week, they insist, and the gathering of the church is for other functions like fellowship and edification. While it is certainly true that Christians should worship seven days a week and not just one, and while edification and fellowship are clearly part of the purpose of assemblies of believers, there is also clear indication in Scripture that God wants his people to worship corporately, including in the local church. In Psalm 149.1, we find a clear command to worship the Lord corporately. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. While it is certainly important to worship the Lord as individual believers, God evidently delights also in gathered worship. Yet there is no such explicit command in the New Testament. We do find commands to gather, such as in Hebrews 10, 24-25, but no clear command to worship at such gatherings. The question becomes then whether the commands for Old Testament saints to worship corporately are sufficient as commands for New Testament saints. The Examples of Corporate Worship It is for this reason we turn to examples of what believers did as they obeyed the command to gather. In the Old Testament, one of the purposes for gathering was clearly worship. Psalm 111.1 says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. But is this also true of the New Testament? Let's examine an example of a church gathering. In fact, this example is of the very first church gathering. Certainly, this gathering set precedent for those to come. We find such an example in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Luke lists four commitments to which these believers devoted themselves as they gathered for the first time as a church. The first commitment of this infant church was devotion to apostolic teaching. They certainly had much to learn as new Christians, so the apostles instructed them in the teachings of Jesus, how he had fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, and how they should live with each other and be witnesses for Christ. And these people were devoted to this teaching as they gathered. After a while, the apostles wrote down this teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so now we have this same apostolic teaching recorded for us completely in the letters of the New Testament. The apostolic teaching to which this infant church was devoted was basically the New Testament scriptures that we have today. This commitment illustrates the first important element of biblical worship, presentation of truth. Remember, worship cannot take place unless truth is presented. And so the fact that this first church gathering was devoted to truth is the first step towards worship. Next, Luke says that they were devoted to the fellowship. This word literally means having in common. 
It's the same word used in verse 44 that is translated, had everything in common. What was it that these 3,000 new converts from all over the world had in common? Their new faith in Jesus Christ is what gave them unity. This kind of unity is expressed throughout the New Testament with reference to the gathered church. The fellowship is not what we might normally call fellowship today, getting together for a piece of pie and talking about sports or politics. This kind of fellowship is gathering to enjoy what we have in common, namely our relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, we are sharing with each other the responses of our spirits toward God. We are sharing in worship. The third commitment was devotion to the breaking of bread. There is a definite article in the text, the, which indicates that this is specifically speaking about the Lord's table. This was something the first church was devoted to because Christ had commanded them to be devoted to observing the Lord's table in the context of the gathered church. What is significant about this ordinance of the church? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives specific instructions to the church concerning participation in the Lord's Supper. But earlier, in chapter 10, he explains the significance of the ordinance. Verse 16 reads, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The word translated participation here is the exact same word translated fellowship in Acts 2.42. It emphasizes what we have in common as a gathered church. It emphasizes the unity we share in Christ. It is often translated communion which is why we sometimes refer to the Lord's table as communion. The significance of this communion is that we demonstrate together the unity and fellowship of worshiping Jesus Christ. This is why the ordinance was given to the church and not just individuals. This is why you can't just have a few friends to your home and have communion. This is for the whole body to partake of together. So, this devotion to the Lord's Supper is another evidence of a unified expression of worship to the Lord. They committed themselves to this observance as a God-ordained means of expressing spiritual responses to God. The fourth and final commitment Luke lists of this infant church is devotion to public prayer. Again, there is a definite article, the, in front of prayers. It literally reads, the breaking of bread and the prayers. This has two implications. The first is that this is speaking about more than just individual private prayer. Private prayer is important, but these believers were devoted to the prayers, meaning public times of prayer together as a gathered church. The other implication is that the prayers probably refers to specific prayers that were part of regular Jewish practice. It would have been quite natural for this exclusively Jewish Christian assembly to continue some of the worship practices they enjoyed in the temple and synagogues, simply adding truth about Jesus Christ. So these are the four devotions that occupied the attention of the first gathering of the church. 
Each of them describes elements of the biblical essence of worship, responding with our spirits to God's truth, only adding one more characteristic, that of communion with other believers in worship. We see other examples of the gathered church participating in united worship as well. For example, later in Acts 2, Luke records that the same group was gathered praising God, verse 47. Acts 13.2 likewise tells us that a gathering of Christians was worshiping the Lord. Therefore, we can see by example that the gathered church is simply participating in worship, but doing so in a united way. Terms for Corporate Worship While these commands and examples demonstrate that churches gather for the purpose of worship, Probably the clearest evidence relates to the language used in the New Testament to describe what the church is and what it is supposed to do. Consider, for example, Ephesians 2, 19-22. I will cite the KJV translation of this particular passage because the Elizabethan pronouns of that language best reveal the underlying Greek plural designations. In other words, in King James English, you refers to a singular person and ye refers to a group. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul is addressing the gathered church, ye, and he calls them a holy temple in the Lord. The word translated temple here is the same word used for the holy place in the Jewish temple. If the church is described as the holy place of the temple, What do you think is supposed to occur when it gathers? Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, the church is called God's building or dwelling. In verses 16 through 17 of the same passage, the church is once again called the holy place of God's temple in which he dwells. In 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9, the church is called the spiritual house of God in which we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. The original Greek audience reading these texts would have not been able to help but notice the worship language used to describe what the church is and what the church is supposed to do when gathered. So, among other purposes and functions of the church, it must set apart time for worship when it gathers. It must provide time for the presentation of truth about God and time to spiritually respond to that truth with one voice. This corporate worship should take place on that special day set apart from other days because of Christ's resurrection, the Lord's Day. You have been listening to the first part of Chapter 6 of Sound Worship, A Guide to Making Musical Choices in a Noisy World. You can purchase this book on Amazon.com, and next week we'll finish off Chapter 6 and the entirety of the book. I'm Scott Daniel.